Welcome back to the Burnback Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganoella. And this is our fourth installment of the Burnbags collaboration with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center. Now, in this episode, we talk with Ash Jane and Ambassador Alexander Verschbau. We talk with Ash about his idea, which is establishing a D10, which is essentially a multilateral organization of the world's leading democracies. And we talk with Ambassador Verschbau about a parallel track to denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula. Ash Jane is a senior fellow with the Skullcroft Center for Strategy and Security, and he oversees the Atlantic Council's Democratic Order Initiative and the D10 Strategy Forum. Previously, Mr. Jane was a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he had an emphasis on U.S. alliances and partnerships, international norms, and challenges to the democratic order, including those posed by Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. That democratic order is the subject of Ash's idea to establish a D10 steering committee. Well, the issue we're facing today is that the rules-based order, uh, this international system that the U.S. and its allies have established and has been in place largely since the end of World War II, today that system faces a serious set of challenges, particularly from authoritarian powers such as Russia and China, uh, which are seeking to disrupt the system. Uh, They're seeking to undermine the values that underpin that system, the values of democracy, uh, of an open global economy. Um, They're looking at developing disruptive technologies uh, that can interrupt the way in which that system has been uh, been, um, implemented. And uh, they're they're looking to establish their own respective spheres of influence, um, which as a result could have some serious implications for the kind of rules-based world based that is, that is based around common values, that is based around uh, open economies, um, that has helped develop the kind of prosperity that we've experienced, the kind of security for the U.S. and its allies for the past 70 years. All of those potentially are being uh, challenged and potentially disrupted with the, the rise of these autocratic powers today. Ash then tells us why a D10 steering committee is crucial now amidst all of the other geopolitical circumstances. Well, I think there are two parts to that question, or to the answer to that question. One is that, as President Biden has noted, we are now at an inflection point between democracy and autocracy. Um, Beijing and Moscow are seeking to sow divisions between the U.S. and its allies. And so in this era of great power competition that we're heading into, we need to be able to find ways to work more closely with leading democracies um, in order to to solve the challenges that we face. Um, More more broadly, uh, it's it's important that we we harness the collective power and influence of our allies uh, and that we work much more cooperatively um, if we expect to address some of the immense challenges that we face today that go beyond those posed by autocratic powers, whether it's climate change um, or or technologies uh, or the uh, challenge of nuclear proliferation, we have to be in sync with our allies and partners and use our collective resources together if we're going to succeed. Building alliances practically can be a very difficult thing to do. 
Ash talks about the practicalities of his idea and what this would look like when it's actually done. So the rec- recommendation that we've made is that we need to do we need to do more to formalize a coalition of democratic nations that are that are working together, whose mandate is to work much more closely together to address global challenges. So creating a D10 that would serve as a steering committee of leading democracies to forge common strategies, that's the notion that we think can help address the the series of problems and, and challenges that I just laid out. It does so because by having a platform where leading democracies, where officials from leading democracies can get together on a regular basis and formulate coordinated strategies. Um, It creates the impetus for action. It creates those kinds of habits of of cooperation that will be effective, uh, more effective than we have today, which which relies on sort of ad hoc coalitions, um, occasional outreach to to allies and partners, uh, sometimes Strategies are developed first, and then we're engaging or reaching out to, to, to other allies and trying to get them on board. The idea here is that by having a standing body um, of, that's formulated around cooperation and coordination on strategy, we can develop those strategies together, get buy-in from the beginning, uh, and then implement those strategies in a more effective and coordinated way, uh, whether it's dealing with Russia and China, uh, whether it's uh, supporting and advancing an open global economy or dealing with disinformation. These are all challenges that, that, that are common to democracies that we're all struggling to deal with individually. Uh, and we're much more likely to make progress if we're dealing with them, addressing them in a coordinated way um, in, in much closer alignment. Which countries should be in the D10? Ash provides us his criteria and how to determine which countries fit the bill. It's a great question. Uh, who should be in the D10? You know, who, if you're going to form a group like this, a kind of coalition of leading democracies, um, it's important to have the right actors at the table. But it's also important to keep that table limited in size so that you actually can make progress and create an impetus for action. If it's too big and unwieldy, um, you simply can't. It's simply administratively difficult. Uh, to get some real momentum and to get consensus in a timely way on anything. Uh, so who should be at the table? Well, I would start with the premise that it, it really there are two criteria for how to make this effective. And the bottom line is we don't need optics. We don't need the perception of a group of nations coming together. We need action. We need uh, solutions. Uh, you know, we, we need to drive forward and the and the idea of this whole effort at the at the outcome is focused on actual outcomes. So to do that, the two criteria that I think would make the most sense are number one, the D10 should include nations that are strategically like-minded in their in terms of their sense of threat perception and in their sense of uh, values and interests. Meaning that at, at, at a minimum, the participants should share a commitment to democratic values um, and a commitment to seeing those values advanced overseas because it's in our collective interest to do so. Um, it means that they, they tend to view the world in a way that, that is concerned about the rise of autocracy, the rise of authoritarianism, 
uh, the rise of nations that are that are pushing back on those fundamental values that have been part of the international system since the end of World War II. So having a kind of at the outset a sense that there is a world system, an international system that has been in place for the past seven decades, which is now being undermined in various ways, and that that's of concern. Um, those are the nations that need to be invited to be at the table. Uh, and then we can decide or discuss who, who meets that first criteria and who doesn't. Secondly, to have real um, impetus for action, it, ha it has to be, the D10 needs to consist of countries that have international influence, that have, that have demonstrated influence uh, and capabilities in terms of impacting the global system. That means either um, military capabilities, economic capabilities, or diplomatic capabilities, um, and, and some way of using, of, of having those, uh, ha being able to draw on that for leverage and influence to shape outcomes. That's who you want. Essentially, you want the most influential democracies at the table, uh, rather than smaller, you know, less connected democracies who are important and who we want on board with us, uh, but who, who, who are not positioned, you know, strategically to be able to sh shape and influence the system, maybe as much as some of the larger countries. A D10 cannot necessarily be so broad and overarching that it loses its purpose. Ash talks about what regions of the world a D10 should focus on. Yeah, so the countries that would be involved in the D10 as we imagine it would essentially be the leading democracies from North America, Europe, uh, and the Asia Pacific. So it means from Europe, some of the leading countries, the leading democracies would be the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Italy, uh, from North America, obviously the United States and Canada, uh, and then from the Asia Pacific, it would be um, uh, Japan, South Korea, and Australia. Uh, some have talked about India potentially joining. The British, in particular, have thought uh, that Boris Johnson has said, "Let's bring in India to an expanded G7 meeting," um, and they could certainly be considered. I think there's still some question marks about sort of their commitment on the like-minded side when it comes to advancing um, uh, those kind of core uh, principles and values of international uh, rules-based order. Um, but what we have in mind essentially is expanding the G7 to become a D10 with the addition of some Asia-Pacific powers. Formalizing a D10 may cause U.S. adversaries to dig in and create closer ties. This is a particular concern when you're looking at Russia and China. Ash addresses this criticism and how the U.S. might go about forming a D10. But this is a question that's been um, raised not only uh, by by outside, you know, by experts, but also by some of the officials from the countries themselves. That by by coalescing together, are we simply driving uh, Russia and China closer together? Are we driving others to join them as a kind of counterweight uh, to the D10? The reality is that that's going to happen in any case, uh, and we've seen that over the years. Uh, as I've been working on this set of issues for the past, what, 12 years or so since this first came up, this was a concern raised that, hey, if we, if we form this D10, you're going to start to see closer alignment between Russia and China. Well, look, we've been seeing closer alignment with China and Russia in various ways um, over the past several years, not because it's a response to what we're doing or what the West is doing. It's because they, they see themselves as aligned in terms of advancing certain interests. 
um, they see themselves as both pushing back on Western democracy, um, on sort of some of the core um, tenets of, of the international system, uh, uh, democratic elections, election meddling is a good example. They both have an interest in um, disrupting the way we conduct ourselves both at home. They have, a, they have an interest in uh, standing up for a kinds of um, pushback uh, when it comes to, let's say, an issue like Taiwan or Ukraine. Um, and and they, they, they're going to find ways to cooperate with each other simply because it's in their interest to do so. I don't think having the idea that we're consulting or that we're coordinating policy or strategy in some way with our closest allies is going to have that kind of uh, determinative impact on whether or not they're going to cooperate with each other. They're going to do it anyway. We might as well prepare ourselves to be in the best position uh, to respond. Ambassador Alexander Verschbau is a distinguished fellow at the Scrocroft Center for Strategy and Security. The ambassador was Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2012 to 2016 and previously served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, as well as U.S. Ambassador to NATO, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, and U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea, among many other positions. Ambassador Vershbao, who, as Ryan mentioned, was the ambassador to Korea, talks about his idea in this episode, which is to establish a parallel track approach for denuclearizing North Korea, an issue that has come up repeatedly in the Trump administration or the Kim-Trump summits, and that will likely be a priority for the Biden administration in the years going forward. Well, actually, I was surprised. I I was encouraged by my colleagues to uh, address this issue as part of the 100 Days series. As you may know, most of the work I do these days for the Atlantic Council relates to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but I was ambassador in Korea, and I've been fascinated ever since that time. That was back in 2005-2008 by the never-ending story of how to end the North Korean nuclear threat. And I was among those who actually thought that Donald Trump had had taken a, uh, a wise decision to pursue direct negotiations at the very highest level with Kim Jong Un even though it was risky. Uh, and I was disappointed that after an initially successful summit in Singapore in 2018, Trump uh, blew it on follow-up. And I think missed an opportunity to uh, achieve progress towards the goal of denuclearization of, of North Korea and, and the Korean Peninsula. So my paper is uh, premised on the idea that there was a road that we didn't take after Singapore that is still available to us. Uh, but one key point that has to be uh, maintained is that the goal of those negotiations should be denuclearization and not something less than that. Uh, I was working on this paper at a time when all the pundits and commentators were arguing that uh, Kim Jong-un was never going to give up his nuclear weapons. We should face reality. We should uh, accept uh, that the best we can do is contain the threat rather than eliminate the threat. And I felt that that was strategically a risky choice, because if we actually gave up on denuclearization, we would be, in effect, recognizing North Korea as a legitimate nuclear weapons state. And that could have damaging implications for 
stability and security in the Asia-Pacific region and globally as well. Uh, the most immediate risk that I, I, I highlight in the paper is that it would uh, lead to pressure on Japan and South Korea from, from domestic constituencies to develop their own nuclear weapons. And this could lead to a spiral of proliferation in, uh, in Northeast Asia. It could encourage China to build up its nuclear weapons, which are relatively modest in number right now. Uh, it could also lead to pressures from the South Koreans to bring U.S. tactical nuclear weapons back to the Korean Peninsula, which uh, I don't think is a good idea, would probably create more instability than stability. So uh, I argued that maintaining denuclearization should be the goal, but we need to proceed in a more realistic step-by-step -step fashion. That was another factor, uh, another mistake that Donald Trump made. It was sort of the big bang or nothing. <laughs> and uh, inevitably, and with, with so much suspicion and, and hostility on the Korean Peninsula, any, any so successful diplomatic solution will be arrived at step by step. Uh, so the paper goes on to lay out a kind of an illustrative model of how you could carry out these parallel missions of denuclearization. Uh, normalizing the political relationship between the United States and North Korea, and uh, achieving a lasting peace on the Korean Peninsula, including a peace treaty, which was never negotiated when the Korean War ended in 1953. We still have an armistice. So peace, denuclearization, normal relations are kind of the three parallel tracks. Uh, and the main incentive for the North Koreans to go down these tracks would, of course, be uh, easing the sanctions that are crippling their economy. So that's why the paper came out the way it did and why I think it's an important uh, issue that I hope will influence the uh, approach that the Biden administration takes to this uh, North Korean conundrum. Ambassador Vershbau tells us what his recommendation is for the Biden administration. Now, certainly, uh, I have no illusion that this is a very difficult challenge and it's maybe hard even to make progress down the different tracks, much less to reach the, uh, the final destination. Uh, but, uh, but I think because of the dangers for, for peace and security in the region, we still need to try. Uh, I'm influenced a little bit by uh, something that happened just before I became ambassador in 2005, which was uh, one, of the, one of the breakthroughs in the di diplomatic efforts of that time. Uh, which were taking place in the context of the six-party talks, including China, Russia, Japan, as well as the two Koreas and the United States. And in September of 2005, there was a, an agreement on a kind of package deal that uh, addressed uh, verifiable denuclearization, normal U.S.-North Korean relations, uh, economic cooperation and, and a lasting peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. So the North Koreans did agree to this in, in principle in the past. And what was encouraging by the Singapore summit with Trump and Kim Jong-un was that at least some of these basic elements were agreed. And uh, Kim Jong-un signed up to the goal of complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So. Uh, 
the, the words were ambiguous. It was certainly uh, not a not a, a contract, as President Trump, Trump uh, argued at the time, uh, but at least provided a, a, an acceptable starting point, very similar to that 2005 document. So uh, you know, clearly, North Korea has a lot of reasons why it would want to hang on to its nuclear weapons. They've seen what happened to uh, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi when they gave up nuclear weapons. So he's not going to give them up easily. So convincing him that he's actually going to be more secure without nuclear weapons than with them is something that uh, uh, is not going to be easy. And it won't happen overnight. Uh, but pr proceeding incrementally, uh, trying to convince him to at least freeze his, his weapons, freeze testing, begin to dismantle at least some of the more destabilizing parts of his uh, arsenal in return for serious inducements uh, in terms of uh, security guarantees, the lifting of the UN sanctions, uh, opening up a diplomatic liaison office in Pyongyang, uh, facilitating economic development, involvement by the World Bank and the IMF in helping to build up the, uh, the North Korean economy. Uh, over time, there's at least a chance that we could get him to reduce and eventually eliminate uh, the nuclear weapons. But the paper admits that this may take not just uh, a couple of years, but, but a couple of presidential terms to get all the way to the, uh, to the finish line. And there is a danger that Kim Jong-un would uh, sort of take the money and run early in the game, pocket lots of concessions up front, but then balk at uh, actually going all the way to full denuclearization. So we'd have to maintain leverage as we go along, have the ability to reimpose sanctions if, uh, if uh, Kim uh, freezes progress. And, uh, and expect this is going to be a roller coaster ride. Uh, that, that's sort of just part of the, uh, the game with North Korea. Uh, but, it, but again, I think better making the effort than uh, accepting the status quo. North Korea is in a very geographically precarious uh, position for its government. To its north, it has Russia. To its west, it has China. And to its south, it has South Korea, bolstered by the United States of America. And to its east, certainly it has Japan. So which countries should participate in denuclearizing North Korea, or at least the efforts to denuclearize North Korea? Which country should be involved with this? The ambassador elaborates. I definitely think we should uh, at least try to enlist the help of China and Russia and bring the Japanese into the process as well. And in a sense, going back to something along the lines of the six-party talks that we had in the uh, first uh, decade of this, of this century, uh, I think we've seen the enforcement of the sanctions uh, slacken on the part of China and Russia. Uh, I think reflective of their broader uh, hostility towards the United States. Uh, they don't think they need to do us any favors in enforcing the sanctions. So bringing them into the process may force them to take a little bit more responsibility for North Korean misbehavior. Um, but it's also, I think, a way to ensure that the North Koreans can't play us off against each other on on, on the diplomatic track uh, and uh, you know see whether we can... Uh, make this a sort of a, the exception to the broader animosity that now prevails in relations with Moscow and with Beijing. Uh, 
I think they would uh, respond positively to an effort to bring them in. I think Putin, who I know better than I than I know Xi Jinping, uh, Putin uh, does crave the stature that comes from superpower diplomacy and being at the top table. And so uh, there'll still be plenty of other problems in the relationship. But this may be an area where Russia sees it in, in its interest to be helpful and to show that it doesn't have an entirely zero-sum approach to the relationship. A nuclear-capable North Korea is a threat to the entire world. Ambassador Vershbau, who served as Deputy Secretary General of NATO, discusses what a potential NATO role may be in the region and how they could work to denuclearize the peninsula. Well, NATO is now discussing how it can become more involved in managing the, the global challenge of China and maybe making more use of some partnership uh, relations that it already has with South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, even Mongolia as a partner of NATO. Uh, not to Kind of become the main player in the Indo-Pacific. I think that's still for the United States and maybe a handful of allies who have uh, strong interests and strong capabilities, uh, including the UK, for example, or France. Uh, but uh, but NATO, I think, can contribute to kind of managing technological challenges from China, setting standards for 5G cooperating on uh, cybersecurity against uh, the Chinese threat, uh, dealing with the expanded Chinese control and ownership of critical transportation infrastructure in and around Europe, which could impede NATO's ability to carry out its uh, deterrence missions in Europe. Uh, so there are many dimensions to the Chinese threat where NATO needs to get involved, but NATO isn't going to start sending uh, uh, maritime task forces into the South China Sea. I think that'll be left to the U.S. and, and a handful of, of allies. But on North Korea, uh, NATO has issued lots of statements over the years supporting diplomatic solutions, condemning North Korean violations of U.N. Security Council resolutions. Those probably have uh, only modest impact on Kim Jong-un. But it is important, I think, if North Korea does begin to deal, that they know that the whole international community is interested and that they could actually benefit from uh, taking a more constructive approach. And they might even see uh, some of our European allies ready to contribute economically to, to stabilizing the Korean Peninsula in the event we actually uh, achieve some kind of diplomatic uh, success in these negotiations. I'm getting way ahead of myself here in terms of uh, that kind of optimism. Uh, but uh, you know, the world is getting smaller in many respects, and the Europeans could make some contributions both through NATO and through the European Union. And that concludes the fourth episode of our miniseries with the Atlantic Council Skullcroft Center, 100 Days, 100 Ideas. In this episode, you heard from Ambassador Vershbao on denuclearizing North Korea. You heard from Ash Jane on a potential D10 alliance system. Uh, please stay tuned for the fifth episode, which should be releasing soon. And please check out our Monday interviews. This Monday, we will be having an episode with Dr. John Chachari, who discusses sovereignty. And for our Friday episodes, where we discuss what in the world is happening in foreign policy and national security. Until next time, thank you. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.